Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Make sure not to miss a single podcast and subscribe to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast at iTunes, Google Play, or your favorite subscription service. The views expressed in this presentation are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of the U.S. Army War College, U.S. Army, or Department of Defense. Welcome to A Better Peace, the War Room podcast. I'm Ron Granary, Professor of History at the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College and podcast editor of The War Room. It's a pleasure to have you with us. The return of China to great power status has been much on the minds of American strategists over recent years, which has also led to renewed scrutiny of Chinese policy towards the peoples and territories of its western frontier. Beijing's efforts to reduce the influence of the Uyghur population of Xinjiang province should trouble us, and are especially important considering China's broader efforts to expand its influence in Eurasia as part of the Belt and Road Initiative. To truly understand these current policies, however, we should try to understand their broader political and historical context. Chinese leaders have struggled to develop coherent policies toward Eurasia for centuries, and the work of building a policy for the larger Central Asian region has serious implications for the building of the modern Chinese state. These insights are central to the new book, China's Western Frontier and Eurasia, The Politics of State and Region Building by Dr. Zanel Garcia a colleague in the Department of National Security and Strategy here at the Army War College, and he is joining us today on A Better Peace to discuss his research and its implications for future policy. Zanel Garcia is, as I mentioned, an Associate Professor of Security Studies in the Department of National Security and Strategy at the U.S. Army War College. His research focuses on the intersection of international relations theory, security, and geopolitics, specifically how interpretations of security and the geopolitical environment shape the discursive and empirical processes of regional formation and transformation in the Indo-Pacific and Eurasia. Welcome to A Better Peace, Dr. Zanel Garcia. Thank you for having me on, Ron. Appreciate it. I'm glad we finally had a chance to do this. So what inspired you to write this book and how does it fit into your broader research interests and agenda? So this book originally starts off, uh, it's a project that builds off from my dissertation Mm -hmm. work. And I had not originally started doing work on Eurasian politics. Most of what I had written up until that point and published dealt with uh, maritime issues in the South China Sea, Chinese politics there, Japanese politics there, Southeast Asian politics. Uh, But at this point of the game, I had already finished a thesis that was rather lengthy. I had gotten it contracted for a book. And my advisor basically tells me, you're not writing a dissertation on this. And so I immediately end up, you know, running around like a, you know, headless chicken trying to figure out, okay, what else can I look at? And it turns out that I'm really, really interested in frontier politics. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really matter what region, but because I was doing China, it kind of brought me there. So frontier politics is what got me started. And I couldn't help but be really attracted to Xinjiang in particular because my advisor was a historian by trade. We always had readings on the Silk Road. And so there's that component there that just kind of brought me there. 
And so I ended up spending several years doing nothing but trying to learn as much as I can about the history, culture um, of the region and trying to understand its place in, in, you know, for Chinese, you know, empires and ultimately the Chinese state. So the way that it fits into my broader agenda is two things. The first is that I would argue that my main focus in in international relations is looking at state, uh, sorry, regional Mm -hmm. and formation and transformation. And so the politics of that is what really interests me. And so in this case, as I was looking at Chinese politics and the frontier, I become more aware that their efforts to integrate frontier spaces more effectively uh, to the Chinese state kind of necessitated this wider regional outreach for those internal policies to work. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of how I would Right. Frame. Well, and I'm I'm fascinated when you talk about uh, frontier regions, right? That, that the the relationship between borders, which are relatively fixed, and frontiers, which are uh, a little more amorphous. And since I know that your work is about sort of d- discursive spaces, so how do people think about things and how do people talk about things? Um, I'm I'm fascinated by this idea that to a certain extent, uh, for the Chinese, for Chinese successive Chinese regimes, right? Part of the problem is deciding, you know, where is our border, but the other problem is, is how do how do we integrate the things across the border, the people across the border, into a vision for the broader region? Um, and since a lot of political discussions in the West um, tend to argue that you know you can somehow draw borders and defend them, and that they they are um, that that you know, borders are are fixed. Um, how should we understand this relationship between the desire to have a sort of border for administrative purposes and also to have a regional vision for the areas on both sides of that border? That's a great question. I mean, I think you're right in the sense that our understanding of territorial states, right, they're bounded by these very fixed um, borderlines mm-hmm. is a relatively new mm-hmm. thing in the grand scheme of, you know, political entities. And at least for me, as I was studying um, Chinese empires and dynasties and their politics in, in, in these frontier spaces, it becomes very obvious that even though there was this very dominant idea of, you know, the Tianxia system, the all, you know, all under heaven concept, the way that sovereignty and territorial spaces worked was very different than what the modern Chinese state looks mm-hmm. like today in the sense that sovereignty was not necessarily directly over space. It was over people. And importantly, it was dictated by the relationship, a very hierarchical relationship between the emperor and, and, and their subjects. But also important for my interest is that assuming, let's say, that a particular dynasty may have a claim to what we now call Xinjiang today, as the Tang dynasty did you know, a thousand years ago. The way in which sovereignty would work in this case wasn't necessarily that the empire is directly administering this area. It was that they were effectively sending colonies of soldiers with their families in order to essentially, you know, subsist and and, and supply themselves. But through their connections with local communities and peoples, right, sovereignty becomes more diffuse and layered. And so their authority was managed by local, you know, local chieftains versus that of the loyalty to the empire, right? Well, and I, and I know we'll 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 probably move back and forth a lot between past and present here. But when the way that you just described uh, historically <clears throat> imperial policy towards the West, 
um, than um, what the Chinese regime is doing today, which is encouraging Han Chinese to migrate to Xinjiang, to intermarry, to settle in these areas, to change the population uh, makeup of these regions. Um, so this is not something that's brand new. It's not something that was invented by Xi Jinping. No, it's not. I mean, there, you could find record after record of imperial practices that, you know, when they when they reach a particular frontier zone, particularly if they um, have a pretty bad military campaign, mm -hmm. what they'll end up doing is that they will settle, they will make agreements with local communities, but they'll still have a garrison there. But, you know, these garrisons can be pretty expensive. So again, these soldiers bring their families along. They're not just defending a frontier they're cultivating they're doing trading they're trying to create a new community but then you know you you move fast forward several generations in and you're slowly changing the demographics of that region and so this is not particularly new we we definitely have seen this play out in pretty much every single dynasty uh and of course you see it now in the in the PRC today. Well, and the fact that the PRC is doing this today in Xinjiang does that suggest that previous dynasties had either uh, failed in those those earlier strategic visions or what what had what had happened or what has happened to the point where the uh, the government in Beijing recognizes that uh, a big population in Xinjiang is somehow different from uh, separate from the folks back here and so therefore they have to sort of re-engage with this kind of internal imperial policy. Um, was there any particular moment where the current Chinese regime decided that they had to uh, restart this or did or did they restart this policy towards Xinjiang that we hear so much about today? Yeah, so I think there's two points there that are that that are probably helpful to to answer this question. Number one, historically, that province has never been profitable for the state, uh -huh. so it's always been a drain on imperial coffers, and it was a drain for the Republic of China, mm -hmm. and to this day, kind of remains a drain on the PRC resource wise, depending on how you want to measure that, of course, right? The other component is that Xinjiang kind of becomes a gateway either into the empire or from the empire outwards. Now, when the state is particularly strong, this is not an issue because most of the flow is going outwards. This is trade. Everything's fine. When the empire is weakening, this is a source of insecurity, mm. right? And so what you find then is that when Xinjiang becomes more relevant in the more, I want to say, contemporary in the context of Chinese history here, 17th, 18th century, it is because the arrangements between the empire and the Mongol communities there, the Zungar Mongols, goes awry. Mm. And the Qing dynasty effectively conducts a genocidal campaign to clean out uh, the Zungar Mongols, and it, it bumps up against the Russian empire along its way. Um, you fast forward another hundred years, and then you have... Um, rebellions in this area, which ultimately lead the Qing Dynasty to basically give the region its current name, which is you know the new frontier, Xinjiang. They incorporated. So formally. that's literally what Xinjiang means, the new frontier, right? Oh. Yeah. So it is formally incorporated into the empire uh, at a much later period, mm -hmm. as a result of these rebellions. And so all of this to say then is that you know successive Chinese dynasties had an understanding of what is the core of the empire, 
where the majority of the population is, where the majority of the resources are, the things that matter. And then these other peripheral areas over which they exercise a more layered and diffused you know, authority with, a lot of it dealt with local arrangements and things like that. And that, of course, once you start creating a modern nation state, those kinds of arrangements don't exist in a modern context, right? Not in the Westphalian system. And so now these areas that would, we could have arguably said, are very different entities altogether, now become part of this, you know, modern state. However, you do end up with the problem that all the existing infrastructure, all the administrative, you know, bureaucracies and, 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 and manpower is located in the former imperial center. And these frontier regions are relatively underdeveloped. So one of the interesting things that comes out in, with the formation of the PRC, you get both Mao Zedong um, and Zhou Enlai basically say similar, similar quotes. But the, the quotes, and I'm paraphrasing them here, is, you know, China, pe- people say that China has a lot of people and resources, but in fact, you know, what what really is the truth is that there are a lot of people concentrated in these areas that are under-resourced, but that its frontiers are wealthy, but populated by minority groups. And so that these areas need to be, you know, properly incorporated. Joe and Lai says something that's a little bit more Han chauvinistic, and his argument being that these people are not as cultured as 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 the Chinese, and so we need to bring them in, give them high culture, and in return, of course, you know we have the you know these resources um, in these areas. Well, and and how does as a as a practical matter? Because this idea about uh, ethnic relations within the People's Republic of China, so the relationship of the Han to the other populations, is a is a thing <laughs> that we could we could talk about. But how does uh, the way that the government in Beijing treats the non-Han populations of its frontiers, how does that or does that have any impact on uh, international relations between China and the other Central Asian republics? Like, do they do they watch what's being done to the Uyghurs and say maybe we don't want to have relations with China, or do they view this as that's these are people who live within China and that's their problem, not ours? So there are two points to that, or at least two different competing ideas here. Um, at the elite level in Central Asia, very early on in the 90s, they decided that this was not, never going to be a sticking point. Mm-hmm. In fact, uh, Islam Karimov, a former head of state of Uzbekistan, flat out said this uh, in one of the summits. He said, we are not going to let uh, the question of you know Uyghurs get in the way of our relationship uh, with China. Mm-hmm. And of course, as that you know relationship becomes closer through economic engagement, especially you know Belt and Road Initiative, then at least at the elite level, there's very little interest in taking any kind of position on Uyghurs. In fact, the opposite has happened, in which from the 1990s, uh, several countries in the region have signed extradition um, treaties with China, have essentially repatriated uh, Uyghur um, you know dissidents back to china this this actually becomes one of the first uh points of connection between china and and central asia when they get their independence which was look you're brand new states you're unstable and you also have 
you know, these restive minorities or restive populations, even if they're not necessarily minorities. So we share the same problem. In China, in China, these are called the three evils, terrorism, separatism, extremism. So the last thing you want as a brand new republic is to deal with these kinds of issues. And we have these kinds of issues. So what we should do then is cooperate hmm. on these three evils. So again, you, you can kind of see that it is this elite level kind of agreement. However, you know, the other the other side of this, right, the other counterpoint is that for local populations in Central Asia that have become more cognizant of what's happening in, in Xinjiang in recent years, I, I would say, especially in Kazakhstan, there is a lot, there's a growing resentment by local communities about what is happening there, particularly because the policies in Xinjiang are not just relegated to Uyghurs, they're relegated to all Muslim minorities, which includes Kazakhs, Tajiks, right. uh, and Kyrgyz. And that, that you, you, you touched on the, the question I was going to ask is because I'm fascinated by that idea that these regimes basically decide they have more in common with each other as authoritarian regimes with restive populations than they do ethnically. Um, uh, but also then the issue of you know where does Islam fit into this discussion? Uh, certainly, the the Chinese regime's attitude towards Islam is not unlike its attitude towards other forms of organized religion, right? That it's it you know that they they may allow its exercise as long as it has no political content whatsoever, um, which uh, or they will try to control it. But when you're dealing with massive Islam uh, Muslim populations throughout the region, um, is this ever going to be a problem for the PRC that other Muslim states are going to say, you know, maybe we don't want to deal with somebody who treats our co-religionists so shabbily? Yeah, I mean, so there are two points here, too, um, in the sense that you would think that this would have had a much, much bigger effect in the Muslim world, right? And it hasn't. And so, at least again, among uh, elite populations, there's not a whole lot of, you know, desire to push on this, especially if they are receiving foreign direct investment from China and they're benefiting from tourism, etc. But even among local populations, even th those that are aware clearly are critical of it. But there, there has been a degree of success on 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 the Chinese side in shaping the narrative in many of these countries. Uh, one of the things that they really did early on was invite, um, you know, influencers over to, to Xinjiang so that they could, you know, check out some of these vocational classrooms as, as they depicted them. And these people go back and report on it. They have a massive following, you know, on Instagram, TikTok, etc. And you know, and if enough people buy it, then there's less incentive to really try to push their own governments to then push China on the issue. As far as, you know, Islam being unique or maybe not unique in the way in which the CCP um, treats religious groups, this is interesting because historically religion hasn't been a, a, a particular problem in China, barring certain periods where, you know, a particular group create you know rebels um it, although in many cases most of these would have been buddhist buddhist sects that 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 that, that were part of rebellions but islam in particular and i had written a piece of this it's probably the first thing i ever published which is weird um ha, i was looking at the two major um muslim groups in china the Hui, which are you know chinese 
uh, I guess ethnically Han Chinese Muslims, and of course Uyghurs. And how dynasties or central governments see these groups has more to do with whether they think you are creating problems or not. So it had very little to do with the religion itself mm-hmm. and had more to do with, are these people rebelling? What is the reason they're rebelling? Okay, then we don't like those people. <laughs> and so, but, you know, the, the Uyghurs at some point in time and, you know, other Muslim groups at some point in time were actually protectors of, of the empire. Mm-hmm. Right. So they kind of fluctuate between, you know, resistance and assimilation over time. What definitely has changed under the CCP is that for a long time, they were very ambivalent about what it is that you do with religious groups. Obviously, as a, you know, Marxist-Leninist party, um, they certainly were not fans of religion in general. There was a broader softening of this in the 1980s. In fact, in Xinjiang, in the 1980s, there was a massive growth of... uh, mosque constructions and a lot more of freedoms for religious practice this changes very dramatically uh in the mid and late 1990s and onwards because again after the central asian countries get their independence there were some protests inside of xinjiang because those who wanted at least greater forms of autonomy if not outright independence you know use that as an example and the CCP effectively overcorrected. See, and and this is this is fascinating to me because I, I I get your point about how you know ultimately, right? The the color green matters, but not the color green connected to Islam, but the color green connected to cash, right? That the um, I've I've seen interviews or heard interviews with say the Prime Minister of Pakistan who rails against what he sees as Western. Uh, anti-Muslim sentiment. And when he's asked, well, what about what the Chinese are doing in Xinjiang to your fellow Muslims? His response is basically, well, that's an internal Chinese matter um, because it matters a great deal who's getting the, the support. And so I guess what I wonder is, um, I'm trying to think about the right way to phrase this, is that uh, if the Chinese have been so successful in damping down uh, criticism of their behavior in Xinjiang, because of the, the the power of their the economic inducements they can offer and the other sort of partnerships they offer, why does the Chinese regime feel the necessity of also pursuing the more heavy-handed policies that it's pursuing in Xinjiang? Right? Why don't they just you know why aren't they just trying to win the people of Xinjiang over economically? Why are they pursuing the policies that have been uh, have been accused of being genocidal with the peoples of Xinjiang? That's a great question. I think it it, it, it the reason we are here where we are now mm-hmm. um, is a product of a couple of things. Um, that ambivalence over the role of religion has kind of withered away mm-hmm. into one that is very clear that religion fundamentally is a problem, mm-hmm. no matter no matter what, right? So you know, the Christians are not necessarily having to deal with the same issues that Uyghurs in Xinjiang are. But there's a lot more, right? Um, direct um, control over religious practices. Um, so that's one component. That ambivalence seems to have gone. There's a little bit of Han chauvinism here too, mm-hmm. which is okay. Look, these people are clearly backward, culturally, linguistically, religiously. So we have to figure out a way to to remove that from the equation and you can actually you know if, if you look at some of the documents that that are out there from um ccp officials talking about the situation there you find some very very incredibly racist things mm-hmm. for example 
I'll give you one. It's like, well, one of the reasons or justifications for why they are um, no longer allowing Uyghurs to, t- to take courses in Uyghur after a certain point in time is that, look, the language is so backward that it doesn't have words for, you know, technological products. And how can you teach people engineering and, and all these STEM, you know, courses if their language is backward? Right. Could you, you know, just think about that for a minute. Right. In the sense that well, Mandarin didn't have words for these things either. <laughs> people people so. create them. Right. right? right. Um, as you create new technologies, you create words for them. Right. So this is your know, languages are malleable. They're not fixed. Right. But you see these kinds of justifications used. I'm like, well, they don't have a word for like computers. So clearly they're this is backwards. So why not learn Mandarin? See, and, and I'm, I'm fascinated by this, right? And I, I don't want to, uh, we're, we're going we're gonna to have to talk about a couple other things in the time we have left. But I, the, first of all, is the, uh, the, the idea that every dominant, uh, every dominant culture eventually tries to use the, the fact of its dominance as proof of its superiority, which therefore justifies its continued dominance, which is a, uh, that's a, that's an interesting cycle. The, um, the, the expansionist desire to believe that peoples who are different are somehow standing in the way of progress and therefore it's justified to get rid of them. Uh, I, I am, so I, we, we've talked a little bit about how this, how this impacts when we talk about region building. And so China wants to develop, the PRC wants to develop, uh, relations with the States in the region as part of the, the Belt and Road Initiative. I want to bring in the Russians here for a moment because this is what I'm fascinated by as well. Is you know there's a lot of talk in the West of the possibility of Russia and China somehow cooperating against the liberal world order, and certainly she and Vladimir Putin made sure to stand together and shake hands at the Olympics to show this. But when China imagines itself moving, you know, developing its influence westward into Central Asia, of course, the Russians have imagined themselves moving their influence eastward into Central Asia for uh, at least as long. Um, is the relationship between China and Russia uh, going to encourage some kind of broader regional policy building in in Central Asia, or is it going to be a source of conflict between uh, between China and Russia for the uh, you know, for the the high ground, if you will, um, in Central Asia? Yeah, that that's a golden question, right? right? Because you knew I had to ask <laughs> for right. No, but th- this is, is a really good one because. There are no shortages of articles that are always talking about, you know, this new grand partnership or alliance between China and Russia. And I can't help to like roll my eyes every single time I read that. And the best way that I could describe this, and other scholars have done, have said this, and I'm blanking out on who, but I I think it, it paints a more accurate picture in my mind. They, there's a convergence of interest between the two countries, very systemic level. So think of it strategic partnership at that level but tactical competition mm, okay right because there are divergence of interests. So, so if you want to look at that in a more tangible way than in central asia so far there has been a really good division of labor between the two so russia continues to have its very strong security partnerships with the central asian countries right and china doesn't mess with that and china effectively takes the role of you know public goods provider in the context of economic development. So far, that division of labor has stood. But you you do see areas in which the Russian Federation has played the role of a spoiler. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, Shanghai Cooperation Organization, the way that China originally envisioned this organization was that this was going to not just be an institution to help them collaborate over, you know, uh, non-traditional security issues like 
you know, non-state actors, things like that. But that could also eventually become a very strong uh, economic partnerships. A lot, a lot of it dealing with um, energy, mm-hmm. gas, oil, but also possibly eventually become you know a more robust trade zone. It was Russia that pretty much torpedoed that idea. So, although I'm not one of those people that would say the SCO is an irrelevant institution because it's not, it, it serves a key role of legitimizing China's engagement in Central Asia. It never fulfilled its intended promise because the Russians ensured, right, that they were not going to uh, allow the, the Chinese to have a much uh, wider role. And even as the SEO has expanded, right, the Chinese wanted the Pakistan uh, the Pakistanis to join and the and Russians said, okay, well, then bring the Indians in. Mm-hmm. Right, and as you expand this, and you know you have these key rivals in the same institution, then you can almost imagine immediately that that institution is not going to be as effective as it should be because they're just completely competing interests. The next example that's similar to this, right? That the Chinese really do want to invest in in Russian uh, high speed rail to connect, you know, onwards to Europe. Uh, two of their corridors uh, for the Belt and Road deal with this: the China Mongolia Russia Economic Corridor. And then the new Eurasian land bridge, which goes through Xinjiang into Kazakhstan, into Russia. And the Chinese have offered time and time again to invest in these areas, but the Russians have basically just logged, hmm. you know, and, and you know th- this effort uh, to for for more than one reason. But in, in in general, they obviously need the money. They need the upgrade of that infrastructure. You have a country that's willing to front the money, they have the technology to do it too, and the workforce to do it. So all the incentives in the world indicate that you should be doing this and they have purposely tried not to. See, that's interesting because of course, because anybody, and we, we assume that Vladimir Putin and his leaders, they have uh, a historical sense, right? They understand that building the railroad, the Trans-Siberian Railroad eastward was a projection of Russian power. And so the idea of helping the Chinese to essentially reverse the flow of power back to the West that I could see that would make them a little uncomfortable. Um, the history matters, right? So it's not just a matter right. of, you know, Hey, we could use a railroad. Well, and, and we're, we're just about at the end, but this gets to the, the final overarching question for all this. And that is um, assuming that, right. The Chinese have an interest uh, and will continue to have an interest in creating regional influence in central Asia, um, that they are going to pursue policies in Xinjiang that, uh, that work with their larger vision for state building and region building. What should uh, the U.S. response to this be? How should the United States view the growth of Chinese regional influence in Central Asia? I think for for the United States to really come up with a coherent policy in Central Asia, which would have to happen. would be nice. (laughs) Yeah. Rather than considering an absolute black hole in American foreign policy. But for that to happen, I really think they there needs to be a better grasp for the rationale for why China is trying to engage in the region, right? So the argument that I had made in this book was that the process of inter- integrating these frontier regions to the rest of China, right, is costly. And one of the key things that the CCP inherently believes in is that economic development is going to lead to political and social stability. This is what's going to guarantee, right, the longevity of the party. It's about survival at the end of the day, right? So this development and income gap 
between the coastal part of China and the interior of China is a security problem from their perspective. The problem then is, well, how do you promote economic development in the frontier regions? Not only that, how do you attract foreign investment there with all of the you know external things that that comes with, right? And ensure that it doesn't destabilize the region, right? So you need to be able to have the capability to more effectively integrate it to the, to the rest of China so that you can exercise authority over it so that then you can open it up, right, for, for external trade. That's the logic. But then, it, then you realize, well, what company would be incentivized to invest in Xinjiang when I can just invest in Guangdong and, you know, the human capital's there, the infrastructure's there, right, and the supply chains are there. Why would I do that? This is where you start seeing the Belt and Road Initiative come out. Right? The idea is, okay, look, we can, our, we, we can create the infrastructure, we can create new supply chains, and the way that it becomes sustainable then is by promoting markets adjacent to us. Right? So at this point, places like Central Asia are not just, quote-unquote, flyover country in the Eurasian continent. They're central, right? literally. Uh, to to the development of the interior of China. Because now if you've created new supply chains and new partnerships and opened up new markets to Chinese goods in the region, then that means you can establish economic activity between Xinjiang, which becomes kind of like a two-way valve, right? So the interior provinces in China go through Xinjiang into Central Asia and beyond. Central Asian countries go through Xinjiang to the rest of you know Chinese provinces. And so that's supposed to make that investment over time sustainable. So what does that mean then for American for policy? Well, it means that the Chinese are definitely serious about closing that development gap in the interior of China, which means that whether the Belt and Road Initiative succeeds or fails doesn't matter because the Chinese will come up with a different initiative altogether and continue to do this. They cannot fail because to fail would mean to potentially destabilize right, right so, the so they can the never country. they can never stop they can never say they can never say that they have failed they will continue to try to do this right they'll just if it fails they will rebrand and call it something else and, and continue to do something right. right because it's they have already internalized that the region matters for the development and stability of the interior of the country right what then that means for the united states is that provides avenues to shape behavior mm -hmm. To sh and also to shape the outcome as well, in the sense that the United States, for once, may want to have some sort of economic policy in Central Asia. It may want to engage in some of the more serious pressing issues in Central Asia, dealing with climate change, water scarcity, um, you know, all of these kinds of things that are immediately impacting local communities. Because what you ultimately want to do is give these countries alternatives so that they are not entirely reliant on a single source of foreign direct investment. Right. right. So in other words, in, in a better understanding of the region, better engagement in the region, understanding of Chinese, understanding Chinese motivations is not the same as simply ceding the whole region to Chinese policy. Right. In other words, you got to be, you, you, you got to have a seat at the table in order to shape the process. Right. You can't just complain about that the fact that the Chinese are the number one investors in the region. So it's not that you're going to displace China. They share a border with these countries. We do not. But it's more of, okay, we can either directly get involved and provide alternatives to development, or we can use the EU, at, you know, which is already engaged in the region, as a multiplier mm -hmm. uh, for, for our efforts, right? So that these countries have 
alternative processes, right? They're not entirely reliant on on Chinese investment. Well, I mean, clearly a complex region and, uh, you know, we'll probably have to have you back to talk about how things develop further, especially after the Olympics. But for now, uh, Zanel Garcia, thank you so much for joining us to talk about your work on A Better Peace. Thank you for the invitation. It was a pleasure. And thanks thanks all of you for listening in. Please send us your comments on this program and on all our programs and send us suggestions for future programs. Please subscribe to A Better Peace. You know you want to. And after you have subscribed to A Better Peace, rate and review this podcast on your podcatcher of choice because that's how other people can find out more about us so that we can continue to grow this community for conversations like this one. Even though this conversation is over, we look forward to welcoming you again sometime soon. And until next time, from the War Room, I'm Ron Granary. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. And have a great day.